Uh, thanks to the praise team for leading us in worship this morning. And our children, second grade and under, may leave for Children's Church. Bye-bye. Just before we, <clears throat> we dive into the message, and it will be in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, I introduced to you last Sunday morning the, uh, the little booklet, The Resurrection in You, by Josh and Sean McDowell, and uh, there are copies of these. I think I've ordered 34, 35 copies of these, and what we'd like for you to do, first of all, is uh, they're free. Okay, free is good. Baptists like free stuff, so this is free, meaning that your tithes and offerings help to buy them. So pick one up on the way out. They're on the front pew here in the box. Uh, this is probably the, the single best short book I've ever read on the resurrection, uh, actually from behind, from the uh, apologetic viewpoint. Uh, it's not the most uh, comprehensive, but it certainly is a good explanation of the Christian faith. Remember, without the resurrection, there's no gospel. Jesus dying and just remaining in the grave doesn't save us. So the resurrection is imperative and, and imperative to the gospel. What we would like for you to do is get these, uh, at least one of them, read it. It's 50 pages. You can read 50 pages. You read 50 pages a day on your phone. All God's people said... You know you do, okay? You can read 50 pages and then pass it along to a friend or a relative that may have uh, some questions that may be in unbelief and some questions about their faith. So they're here on the front row, the resurrection and you, very good uh, uh, synopsis of our faith and questions that are answered about the resurrection. And for those of you that are tuning in this morning, perhaps uh, to watch via the internet or listen via the internet, we welcome you with our congregation. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we do want you to follow along. There are pew Bibles there in the pews, and it's on page 1014. And the reason for that is uh, it, it helps you to coalesce what is being preached, and it also helps you to understand that I'm not making this up. The Word of God is there before you, and you can read uh, that uh, for your understanding. So we are in a pivotal uh, portion of uh, 1 Peter. <clears throat> and by that I mean Peter has changed his direction um, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2, and it will run now for uh, throughout chapter 3. And so Peter now is focusing on Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone, hence the title. We are to honor the cornerstone and his gospel. A couple of weeks ago, we started to look at identity. And for believers, our identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And coupled with our identity is privilege. 
And that's what we're going to read uh, again this morning in your hearing. We're going to read from verse 4 through verse 10. You will see the identity. Our identity is always in Christ Jesus, not in ourselves. It's in Christ. And the fact that uh, we have privileges because our identity is in Jesus. Peter writes these words. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture, and then he quotes from a number of Old Testament passages. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation. These are the privileges. You're a chosen generation, your royal priesthood, your holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained a mercy, but now have obtained a mercy. What a great passage on the privileges we have as children of God. So keep that in mind as we make our way through this passage today. Let's pray. Father, bless, I pray the word. It is the only agency that you have promised to bless in this life. The word reveals to us your son. It also reveals to us our sin and our need for your son. And so make that real to us today by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First slide, if you would. We opened with this last Sunday morning. Frederick Hayek was uh, an economist, lived back during the late 19th century, early 20th century. And Hayek said this, one of the fatal conceits of man is that man is able to shape the world around him according to his wishes. And we've been seduced by this line of thinking. We are given to promote humankind and demote God. Now Peter, in verses 2 and 3 of this chapter, let's read those again. As newborn babes, you desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Peter is writing to a group of anxious people, and we live in anxious times. In fact, it is estimated, and I mentioned this last Sunday, that two out of every five adults that you meet suffers from some form of anxiety. This could be, there are a number of reasons for this. It could uh, stem from, this anxiousness could stem from the environment. COVID, absolutely, uh, absolutely has impacted and caused a lot of people, people here, 
myself sometimes, to be anxious. The social distancing that we went through because of that. School situation, so forth. The mantra that we hear almost every day that God doesn't exist. Or he certainly doesn't exist for me. He may exist for you. That's your truth. It's not my truth. And that we are the result of random imaginations of natural mutations that somehow over billions of years survived. Climate change will soon extinguish mankind. You have to watch out for free speech because now free speech is censored. And you can be counseled for even thinking because people know what you're thinking now. The mind reader. And anxious because everyone on social media seems to have a better life than you and I. Well, Peter is writing this passage of Scripture to help us in the fact that we are living stones because Jesus is the living stone. He introduces this passage in verse 4 coming to him. And we covered a number of passages of Scripture last Sunday morning. As a matter of fact, the last Sunday's message and this Sunday's message go hand in hand. So last Sunday's message is online. You can go and download it and listen to it. And you should because it helps flow as we'll see this morning. The believer's identity is in Christ. And the remedy for the anxiousness that sometimes we all feel in this world is God's cornerstone. That's what Peter is writing about here in this passage. And in verses 4 through 10, Peter gives us some understanding of these attributes, these privileges that we have. And so, I have a little chart here. The traits of Jesus are listed for us in verses 4 and 6. Let's read those again. He's a living stone, chosen by God, and he's precious. And then in verse 6, it says, he's contained in the scripture, he's a chief cornerstone, he's elect, that's the same word, or same root <coughs> word, rather, as chosen, and precious. And then there are benefits for you and I. He's a living stone. He's called that because he was resurrected. And that you and I then become living stones because of Jesus. We're not living stones without the living stone. Second thing, Christ was rejected by humans. And we see that in verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We'll follow that. The stone which the builders rejected, verse 7, has become the chief cornerstone. We likewise are exiles and aliens, just like Jesus was rejected, we too are put out of the mainstream. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. So we are, in fact, Peter begins in First Peter, in the first couple of verses, talking to a group of individuals that were born again, that were anxious because they lived in the Roman Empire, and the Romans called them atheists because they followed Christ. And so Christ was rejected. We should not think any less of our being rejected. In God's eyes, we are chosen and elect. 
and, uh, rather Christ was chosen and elect, and in God's eyes, you and I have been chosen and elect. So these are some of the benefits that we see that Peter is outlining for us as we move through this particular passage. Now, on Wednesday evening, I was presented a great gift by the trips and the sours. And so rather than telling you to go to the next slide, <laughs> next slide, brother. Oh, very nice. Isn't that a wonderful likeness of me? <laughs> no eyes, no nose, no ears, just whatever that is. Thank you all for doing this. And Bethany made us treats. Bless you. She's, she's, they've moved on. But she makes treats, as you all know. And we enjoy those treats. So when you hear me say next slide, brother, that has been codified, and I have a trademark on that. So you can't do anything. You can't use it, or I will lawyer up, okay? In these verses, in the first part of verse 4, Christ is the living stone. In, ver in the latter part of verse 4 and verse 5, believers are living stones. And we are built up as a spiritual house. Verse 6, first part, Christ is the cornerstone of the house. The latter part of that, believers are never to be ashamed or never will be put to shame because of Christ. Christ is not going to shame us. Christ died for us. Verse part of verse 7. The cornerstone is to be honored by believers. That's where the title of the message comes from. He's to be honored by believers. Esteemed. Higher than me. Higher than you. A lot of part of verse 7. In uh, verse 8. The downfall, downfall of those that reject the living stone... There are those that stumble over the rock of offense. We'll look at that this morning. Verse 9, we have a new identity. We're not the same. If you're here this morning and you think you can come to Jesus and remain the same, then you have believed the devil's lie. That's not going to happen. You come to him just as you are, but Christ Jesus is not going to leave you as you are. We're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're special people, specific people. And then in verse 10, because of this, we receive God's mercy and are saved, are born again. Unbelievers don't. And we'll see some of that this morning. And because of that, they are not saved. So two major themes here in this passage. Christ is the chief cornerstone. We Spent a great deal of time talking about that last Sunday morning, how that the, the cornerstone initially was quarried for Solomon's temple. And uh, it was one of the largest stones ever taken out of a quarry, and it wasn't done in 2022. It was done in 1000 B.C. So having to be quarried, having to be carved, having to be... Uh, the, the sides to be executed in such a manner that the cornerstone was laid. It was the chief cornerstone laid 
in the beginning of the building of the Solomonic, Solomonic Temple. And this gave to us the reason he is called the chief cornerstone. I also reminded you last Sunday morning that the entire building of the temple, all of the materials, all of the quarrying of the stone, everything that went into the temple was done off-site. There was to be no noise in the building of the temple. Be still and know, and that's why David would write that previously and Solomon would use that, that I am God. Two major themes. Christ is the chief cornerstone, and Christ is greater than the temple. I reminded you also that this, the initial cornerstone that they brought up Mount Zion to the hill, to the temple hill, when they set it into place, they thought something was wrong with it, so they rejected it. That's where you get the phrase, rejected by men. And they pushed it over from the Temple Mount, Mount Zion, into the Kidron Valley. And they went and got another stone. They went and then they rejected that one. They went and got another stone. This happened for quite a while. And so some of the engineers and architects said, well, let's go back and we spent all this time. Let's get the initial one. So they did. Brought it back and they found that their calculations were wrong. The stone was correct. That's the way sinners are. They calculate about Jesus and their calculations are wrong. That's why Peter writes this particular passage. Next slide, brother. We are now the temple of God. This is a church building, but it's not a temple, and it's not where God dwells. It's where God joins with us through the Spirit. But for believers, we are the temple of God. In fact, Paul would write in the book of Ephesians, he said, therefore you are built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. Paul was including himself in the apostles, and he would also include Peter in the apostles. We'll see that at the end of 2 Peter. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, when we look at this passage of Scripture, be reminded of this. We are living stones... And we are a spiritual house, verse 5 says. We're a holy priesthood. We offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable because we are part and parcel of the living stone. They're not acceptable because we do them. They are acceptable because of the living stone. We are a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Next week I hope to get into the holy priesthood, the royal priesthood that he mentions and talks in verse 9. And we can bring some of this out. So what Peter does here is Peter describes spiritual sacrifices in verse 5. First of all, they are offered up to God in worship. You and I are making a sacrifice this morning. We could be doing many other things. 
But the Word of God says that the children of God should be in the house of God on the day of God, on the day of the Lord. And the purpose for that, obviously, is, first of all, that we rest and that we worship. That's part of our spiritual sacrifice. Also part of our spiritual sacrifice develops a pattern for social conduct, how we live. Belief always precedes behavior. And that's the reason for the introduction in chapter 1 as he leads into chapter 2. So we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Look at verse 6 and 7. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, and he uses this twice. Look over at verse 8. They stumble being disobedient. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Let's throw in verse 8. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So the cornerstone, we are told by Peter, is elect, he's chosen, he's precious, he's accepted by God, but he is rejected by men. Look back at verse 7 of chapter 1. Now, in verse 7 of chapter 1, actually look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious, that's that word, same root word, Jesus is precious, our testing of our faith is precious, it's more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, There's a test that the Spirit of God puts believers through to ensure that we are born again. Several tests, as a matter of fact, and that test is called life. There's also a test that Jesus was put through. If the cornerstone was perfect, and he is, then the symmetry of the building would be maintained, and it is. The building now that Peter is talking about is not the Solomonic temple. It's not the Zerubbabel temple. It's not the temple of Herod. It's now our souls. And it's built upon the chief cornerstone. And we talked about the cornerstone. We talked about its being rejected. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus talked about this in each of the synoptic gospels. Peter would have been there He would have heard Jesus preaching about this particular event. Matthew chapter 21. Now look at verse 33. There's a parable here. I'm not going to read the entire parable, but this is the parable of the landowner. And just a couple of verses to understand why Jesus is quoting uh, from Psalm 118, which we'll look at in in just a minute. Here another parable. 
There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. So when the vintage time came, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. The vine dressers took one of his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. And he sent more. They did the same thing. Last of all, they sent his son, saying, They will respect my son. Jesus was talking of himself. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said, This is the heir. He's worth a lot. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And Jesus asked this question. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what do you think he's going to do to the vine dresser? And they said, Pharisees and Sadducees listening to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in the season. And then Jesus said, he didn't say they were correct, he just quotes scripture. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's a quote from Psalm 118. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you. First of all, you don't deserve it. We don't deserve God's kingdom. It's going to be taken from you. It's going to be given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone, who do you think he's referring to? Himself. Will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to power. Yeah, you can reject me, but there are consequences to the rejection. Turn to Mark 12. Very similar. Mark 12. Verse 24. Mark 12. Same parable. Not going to go through that again. But look at verse 6. Mark phrases it just a bit differently. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. And of course, the same thing happens. Verse 10. Have you not even read this scripture? Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees prided themselves on knowing the Old Testament, especially the Pharisees. You haven't read this scripture? You don't know what's going to happen? stone which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. It's the one that they pitched over into the Kidron Valley. And guess what? They went back and got it because the one that they discarded is the chief primary cornerstone. And I'm that guy. It's the Lord's doing marvelous in our eyes and they sought to lay hands on him but feared the multitude for they knew he had spoken the parable against them and so they left him and went their way do you understand I heard a sermon many many years ago now turn with me to Luke 20 but while you're turning there I'll say this do you understand that the parables that Jesus is teaching he's teaching to me he's teaching 
to you. Do you understand that? Well, no, in context, yes, in context, he's teaching the Pharisees and Sadducees. But the application is to me. And the application is to you. So Luke phrases it just a bit differently. So let's look at what Luke says. Look at verse 13. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. And of course... They saw the air. They said, come, let us hear him. And so, Jesus, when he asked the question, verse 16, he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyards to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. This isn't going to happen. Why did, they say, why did they say that? Because they understood it was about them. Then he looked at them and said, What then is that that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So yes, men, women, today, still reject the chief cornerstone. And so when Jesus taught this, his disciples would know and those about him would know. In fact, the scribes, the Pharisees and Sadducees knew precisely what he was talking about. They knew the story of the stone that had been rejected and the fact that they had to go and get it and pull it back up on the Temple Mount. They knew exactly what he was referring to. Now here's what's taking place. This is just a few days before he's crucified. Peter was there. So Christ is the living stone. He's the stone. He's the cornerstone. Chief cornerstone. That's what Peter is saying in his in 1 Peter chapter 2. When Christ presented himself to the religious leaders, to the rulers of the day, and the common people, now, we blame the Pharisees and Sadducees, and well, we should. The Sanhedrin, well, we should. But the common people also cried, Release unto us Barabbas. We will not have this man to be king over us. Less than a week after they said, Hosanna to the son of David. Because they rejected him. When he presented himself to the political and the religious leaders of Israel, they had no place for Christ. That's why Luke says that they retorted, certainly not. This wouldn't happen to us. We are the leaders. We are the righteous. We know the law. The rest of these people don't. And who are you? You're, you're a bastard child. That's what they basically said in John's gospel. And you're going to tell us? about the cornerstone. They discarded the Lord Jesus Christ. Next slide. Now, the word here, go back now to 1 Peter chapter 2. The word for rejected here is it. They reject him having examined him. 
they rejected him. They put him to a test, and their thought was he didn't meet all of the test credentials. You see, Jesus was humble, and eventually because of his, of his humility, and certainly for statements that we see in his sermons, he was eventually crucified. Their thought was surely the Messiah would over, overthrow the Romans. I think sometimes we think of that in America. We want Jesus to come so that we can have our way with the political and the religious system. And that's sad. That's an ulterior motive. It is the same ulterior motive that the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees had. Why Jesus can't even eliminate Rome. How could he be the chief cornerstone? Men rejected him then, and they still do. But here, Peter says he is, he's precious in the sight of God. As believers, he should be precious to you. Now, he's more, worth more than mere gold. Literally, phrase is, but he was elect, chosen by God, he was precious by the sight of God. So God examined him too. And since Christ is God, even as Pilate said, I find no fault in him. God took out the measurements of his perfection. and measured God the Son. And that's why prophesied about a thousand years or so before Peter is writing his epistle. He's elect. He's precious. He's costly. He's highly prized. Christ is rare. You and I are not. We're just one of billions, upon billions of humans. Christ is the God-man. That makes him the only one, the rarest of the rare. Now, God affirmed his perfection by raising him from the dead and making him the chief cornerstone, making him the living Stone. Now, if you're listening, say amen. amen. If you're listening, say amen. amen. You familiar with the Mona Lisa? What I'm talking about when I say the Mona Lisa, the, the uh, uh, painting by Leonardo da Vinci? The story is told of two men that walked into, it's in the Louvre Museum in Paris, that walked into this museum, and they came up to one of the curators there, who was a man that was very skilled in art and the understanding of arts and so forth, said, so we are here to see the Mona Lisa. And so the man said, That's, uh, I'm glad to hear that. So I will give you a personal tour and take you directly to the Mona Lisa. And so he did. He took the two men to see one of the great masterpieces. It's by and large thought to be the greatest painting ever. Now, here's the story. 
One of the men looked at the painting and he said, I don't see anything so great about that painting. I don't like the colors. There's some cracks because it's aged now. There's some cracks in the, in the painting. The, the smile that she has, it's enigmatic. What, do we know what's going on? I don't think it's such a great painting at all. To which his friend said, I think it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen. And so they then turned to the curator and said, can you explain to us what's going on? He said, my friend, your opinion about the painting doesn't matter. The world has already judged this painting and found it to be one of the great masterpieces of all time. Your opinion does not matter. God has examined his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and our opinion does not trump God's opinion. Next slide. You see, the truth is, Jesus is not on trial. Yes, he was before he was crucified, but he's no longer on trial. He was killed, he was buried, and he was resurrected. No longer is he put to the test. Now men and women put him to the test. They want to measure him. In fact, they want to measure themselves against Christ. And some people do, and they say, well, he's a great man. But he's no greater than, say, Gandhi. Well, he's a great man. Or he's no greater than some of the great politicians, God help us. You see, we, because of our sin, reject the chief cornerstone. <laughs> but God's already tested. His father has said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's chosen. He's precious. In Psalm 2, we are told to kiss the son. That is a euphemism for worship. Worship the son. Now, in this passage of Scripture that we're looking at here in verses uh, 7, Peter is repeating Psalm 118 two times in his defense of Christ. Now, we see one of them here in verse 7, but turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Remember, Jesus ascended back into heaven, and Peter was uh, anointed of the Spirit of God to, to lead the church and to preach at Pentecost, and so... We know what takes place. As a matter of fact, let's look at, at chapter 2, and then we'll go to chapter 4, Acts chapter 2, and then we'll go to chapter 4. There in Acts chapter 2, Peter brings this up again. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God. So we think we've done a big thing when we judge Christ. A man attested by God. To you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose 
and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, you've crucified and put to death, whom God raised up because it was, and uh, God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by them. Drop down, if you would, and look at verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, attested by his Father, whom you killed. No one's ever saved until their sins pointed out. The sin of exercise, the killing of their king. Peter said, you killed him. You crucified him. You're guilty of his life and his blood. I'm guilty of his life and his blood. And I need someone to assuage that guilt. He is making him both Lord and Christ. Now turn over to Acts 4. Acts 3, a lame man is healed and they... Peter and John, they come to Peter and John, and they're all upset because this has taken place. They arrest Peter and John in chapter 4. And if you would, look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you killed, whom you crucified. We need some men to stand before the Congress of the United States and said, by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you killed. We're guilty of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter knew this. Whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which you rejected. Which has become the chief cornerstone. Now, he says, there is salvation in no other name. Well, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you understand that this morning? We must be saved. Does Jesus meet your measurements? Doesn't matter. He meant it follows. One of Peter's themes in his preaching and also in 1 Peter is the acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's acceptance. His Father's acceptance of who he was. Next slide, brother. Peter says, He's the stone which was rejected by you. He's the very cornerstone, and there's no salvation in anyone else. And then in 1 Peter, which we read, he's, he said, The builders have rejected the stone. He's the chief cornerstone. He's also a stone stumbling. And many, many, in fact, more people stumble over Christ than come to him. A stone of stumbling. He's a rock of offense. 
Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8. Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 9, but let's go to the, to the root of this, Isaiah chapter 8. Last Sunday we were in Isaiah 28, which is part of the quote that uh, Peter has in this particular passage as well. Isaiah chapter 8. Verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me, the Lord spoke to Isaiah, with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. As a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Bind up this testimony. The word stumble there means to attempt to strike at. It's the very same thing that happened when Christ was crucified. When they brought him before Herod's men and they smote him, they struck him on his head, placed crowns of thorns on his head. They stumbled at this man being the Messiah. Christ covers the road. Literally, this means he covers the road with water or stones that hinder travel. When we have heavy rains and you hear, uh, on, see something flash on your, on your phone or on the, on the TV and it says uh, flash floods have occurred in this particular area and they've covered the road and do not drive into streaming water. That's part of the paraphrase that goes here. Don't wade into the water that Jesus himself has identified as being the chief cornerstone unless you are willing to count him as precious and not reject him. Folk willingly disbelieve because the latter part of verse 8 says they are disobedient. They don't comply with God's commands to repent and believe. Jesus is rejected today. The religious and the godless reject him because he fails to meet their criteria. He's too harsh. He's too demanding. He's too supernatural. I want to love him, Jesus, and he is. Had it not been for his love, the cross would have never taken place. That's the love of God. <coughs> Believers, we stumble. John the Baptist stumbled in Matthew 11. Are you the one that should come or should we look for another? Peter himself, who's writing this blessed epistle that we're studying here. Peter himself stumbled three times, at least three times, many times during his walk with Christ on this earth. And we stumble. You stumble. I stumble. 
we sin. But we don't stumble and fall away. We're not swept away by the water or crushed by the stone. Psalm 37, David wrote, The steps of good men are ordered by the Lord. Heard me say a thousand times from this pulpit, and I'll say it again. Don't judge the man by the moment. But do you know what he did? Don't judge the man or the woman by the moment. For every single person here or listening to my voice is susceptible to falling away. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall be utterly cast down. He shall not be utterly cast down. Rather, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. What a God we serve. He knows that we are but dust. I don't think we know that anymore. He knows that we are but dust. Many, many years ago, one of the first funerals I ever went to, and my, my dad may have officiated, I don't recall now. And some of you may recall this. You would go to a funeral, and at the close of the funeral, generally, 1 Corinthians 15 is read, and then at the close there's a prayer, and then the preacher or the pastor would take dirt and pitch it on the casket and say dust to dust we've forgotten that haven't we we are frail and he remembers that we are next slide brother Peter warns the pilgrims in 1 Peter 2 of impending danger turn back with me there and just I want to look at the close of verse 8 and then we'll stop this morning. And he's warning them because he doesn't want them to be surprised when rejection comes. We ought to be prepared for rejection. And it shouldn't surprise us when it comes. We want to be well accepted of all men. Now Paul did say in his writing, we should live peaceably with all men, but he didn't say we ought to be accepted by all men. He didn't say that. Notice what verse 8 says, And a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, they stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Peter warns them. He wants them to be prepared. You see, the unprepared, lost sinners falter. And unless they are moved upon by the Spirit of God and they respond in faith to Jesus Christ, they will permanently reject the gospel. They will fall away permanently. And when they do, they hurt only themselves. They don't hurt Christ. They don't hurt the believers. But they hurt only themselves in stumbling because they fall under the judicial judgment of God the Father because they rejected his son. Do you think when Christ, when God the Father calls his son precious, 
when he calls him beloved, that any that reject Jesus Christ in this life and, and perhaps uh, curse him and ignore him in this life and think all manner of evil against him in this life, do you think that when they stand before God the Father, that God the Father is going to say, come on in, everything's okay. Unless they repent and believe, they will stand before the judicial judgment of God the Father. Why? Because they're disobedient to the word. Disobedient to the gospel. Matthew 13, Jesus taught the parable of the sower. And he said that people would reject his kingdom because of a number of things. He said it could be satanic activity. The evil one comes and snatches away the word. Could be distraction, the cares of this world, the anxiety of this world. The self-righteousness, well, I'm, I'm certainly better than others. And the spiritual blindness and deafness. The word there appointed is likewise translated in some versions as destined. Now God gives us what we deserve. He doesn't give us what we think we deserve. Notice the latter part of verse 10. You were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. That's one of the privileges of being a child of God. We have obtained mercy. Mercy is God's special gift to believing people. And it's available to all that would call out to him. We're told in the book of Genesis and in Romans chapter 9 that God extended mercy to Jacob and he rejected Esau. Now understand this clearly. God was not merciful to Jacob because of who Jacob was. He was not merciful to Jacob because of his identity. And neither was he unmerciful to Esau. Next slide. He was merciful to Jacob despite, in spite of who he was. And every born again sinner God is merciful to us in spite of who we are, despite who we are. And in rejecting Esau, and we'll, Hebrews 12 talks about that, we won't go there this morning. But he was not unjust to Esau because both Jacob and Esau deserved God's judicial judgment. He showed mercy to Jacob. And he rejected Esau. Esau fell under the judicial judgment of God because he disobeyed God's word. And he never repented. The book of Hebrews said he sought it with tears, but he never repented. Disobedience is not destined. Nor is unbelief destined. 
That's our responsibility. It's not destined. You don't find that in this, in this version, in this teaching. Judgment is due because Esau was disobedient and he didn't believe. And Esau made that choice. So let's not jump to any conclusions about God that God is arbitrary in dispensing his mercy or his grace. He is not. The word arbitrary means to have no reason. You could say random. To have no reason. Nope. Do you think God is really random? That he's arbitrary? Do you? Do you? Then we don't understand the God of the Bible. The reason is in God's counsel, which is his secret thing. His purpose. That the purposes of election may stand. He was chosen. We're elect. That the purposes of election may stand in the honoring of his son, who is the chief cornerstone. God's decrees come from his eternal purpose, which is always good, never arbitrary. Sin does that. Ephesians 1, portions from verse 4, 9, and 11, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. I don't know what his purposes are. I know some of what they are from the word, but I don't know the grand scheme of things, and you don't either. In him we have obtained an inheritance. That's part of the privilege. Having been predestined according to the purposes of him. We work all things according to the counsel of his will. This God did out of his grace and free love. Next Sunday is Reformation Sunday. Sola gratia, the grace alone of God. Martin Luther said anyone who does not understand sola gratia, the grace alone of God, does not grasp sola fide, faith alone. Also, he who does not understand faith alone does not understand grace alone. Because faith alone is the means by which we are saved, and grace alone is what it's based on. Our salvation is not a cooperation between salvation and works. Between works and grace. It's not between our merit and our grace. We don't merit anything. Those who cooperate, or the definition of this, this is Catholic understanding of salvation, by the way. Not the Baptist. Whereby those who cooperate receive enough grace for salvation. Faith is a gift of God, given freely by God, as his grace is. It's based on his grace and his mercy. And notice that he says in the latter part of verse 10, who have not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. You have compassionately received the mercy of God, and you have privileges. 
what a God we serve. Anyone who hears the hope of the gospel can call on Jesus Christ. Anyone. Anyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That is our responsibility. The great hymn was written many, many years ago by a man by the name of John Mason Neal, and he wrote these words. Christ has made the sure foundation. Christ, the head and cornerstone. Chosen of the Lord and precious. Binding all the church in one. Holy Zion's help forever. And her confidence alone. Is your faith in the chief cornerstone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the word. We thank you for Peter. We thank you that you moved upon him by the Spirit of God many, many years ago to recall the teaching of his beloved Lord, to study the Old Testament and use these, these verses, these phrases from Isaiah and from Psalms to remind us that Jesus is elect and precious in your sight and we too are chosen as living stones because of the living stone. Forgive us, Father, when sometimes we read this passage of Scripture and we, we conjure up all manner of sinful things and looking at you, you are always good. Always good. The next breath that we take, or if we take one in 10 or 15 years, is because of your mercy. And we praise you for that this morning. If there's any here this morning that does not know you as Savior, my prayer is that you'd move in their hearts and their lives, that you'd bring them to the foot of the cross, that they not reject Jesus Christ, but they would fall on their knees before him, confess their sins, and in faith say, Lord, I believe in you, the one that died for my sins according to the scripture was buried and rose again the third day. And gloriously save them. For believers this morning, I pray that you would forgive us where we are anxious about mostly everything in life. And remind us that in this life we will have persecution. We will have tribulation. But as you said, be of good cheer. For I have overcome the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a verse of a hymn this morning and give you an opportunity to respond to the Word of God. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, that's the first recognition of being born again. Grace, one of, the, one of the evidences of the grace of God is conviction. And because of our sin, we fight conviction. But it's an evidence of grace, God's grace. God wanting to bring us to a saving knowledge of him. So if you're here this morning and the Lord Jesus is speaking to you, you're not certain heaven is your home, then you're not certain that Jesus is your Savior.
As we sing this morning, if you'll make your way out of the pew, we can take you to a private prayer room and they'll lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can leave here this morning a new man or woman in Jesus Christ. But that's your responsibility. The word has been dispensed. The Spirit of God has carried forth his work. It is your responsibility to repent and believe. So, child of God, the Lord may be leading you to the fellowship of this church. You know the Lord as Savior. Perhaps you need to follow him in believer's baptism. If you haven't already, unite with this church by statement of faith, transfer a letter, whatever. We encourage you to do that as a child of God. Help us, Lord Jesus, to understand that there is no sure foundation in this life than the chief cornerstone.